Hi there, I'm Gabby. Welcome to another episode of the Happier Life Project, brought to you by free mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self, in partnership with the Priming Healthcare. Today's episode is for those of you who have someone in your life that you love who is battling with addiction. Addiction is defined as not having control over doing, taking or using something to the point where it could be harmful to you. Addiction, as you know, comes in many forms and today we're not bringing the magnifying glass down to one specific type. We're looking more openly and broadly at addiction and the impact that has on a person's loved ones. Living with an addicted loved one isn't just frustrating. The constant worry and stress over someone's addictive behavior can really take its toll both mentally and physically on friends and family members. Your life is consumed by their problems. You may neglect your own self-care. You worry constantly. One of the most profound ways addiction affects the entire family is the higher risk of abuse. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will know I do like to do my research and see what data I can dig up. I found this. Research shows that loved ones of taking alcoholics, as an example, are at risk for trauma, misplaced anger towards others, depression, anxiety, insomnia, poor self-care and substance abuse. And if you have children, they're also at risk for problems from living with an alcoholic. The same review of research found that children of alcoholics are at risk for behavioural problems, relationship issues, drug and alcohol abuse, suicidal thoughts, and mental health issues like depression and anxiety. When it comes to the impact of addiction on mental health in a relationship, the partner with the addiction may experience increased anxiety and depression, whilst the other partner may feel helpless and overwhelmed by the situation. As I said to today's guest, nobody wins. However, this podcast isn't to depress you further. It's hopefully going to give you some hope and advice on how to take care of yourself and set healthy boundaries whilst loving someone who is suffering at the hands of addiction. And there is no better, kinder and more insightful guest to help us with this topic than Tana Hassan, an addiction specialist who has a wealth of experience working with substance misuse addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction and alcohol addiction for over 15 years. Tana has worked with the NHS, Community Drug and Alcohol Services, Addiction and Mental Health Rehabs, and works not only with the person in addiction, but also with the family members in addiction. Tana was really fantastic to talk to. He spoke sensitively and compassionately regarding all parties involved. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Tana Hassan, welcome to the Happier Life Project. Thanks for having me. To do a quick uh, summarisation, you are a counsellor, psychotherapist and addiction expert. You're a qualified unconscious mind therapist, UMT practitioner 
working with the unconscious feelings and emotions and I couldn't help but think that's probably getting to the root of quite a lot of addictions would I be right um yeah I mean for me I'm a bit greedy so you know when I trained I wanted to train in everything so obviously being a counselor and psychotherapist you know working very much with the cognitive functions and, and and you know what you want to do about it now and here and now going back to the past but the unconscious mind therapy really focuses on the unconscious and literally the out of awareness the unspoken and so the body remembers so a lot of that removal work can take place in the unconscious mind therapy space because it's not really interested in the the cognition the the thought process it's more about the feelings it's going straight into mm. sort of near association you know and that kind of work so i don't know for example everyone's template is different i gave you a bunch of tulips you get really excited because it reminds you of your nan we used to go around our house on a sunday sunday lunch and you start thinking about roast lamb and that's your neuro association so your association to tulips is that memory the body creates mm. that um feeling the brain instantly feels like it's back there in that moment thus feeling and uh, having those thought processes at that time so therefore it's a good experience I could give it to your neighbor mm. down the road and those tulips represent when Hanan died so the template mm. can be completely different so neuro association is really important mm. we must really give neuro association a lot more respect than we realize it's more powerful the body never forgets even if your mind mm. forgets the body never forgets and that's why working with trauma anxiety especially in phobias is really really good space for that removal work because sometimes psychotherapy can really just keep re-traumatizing the people there's absolutely the space to talk but sometimes it's like mm. yeah that's great i keep talking about it but i need to remove this stuff so that's where i i've learned some other skills and sort of hypnotherapy skills and lots of different bits and pieces in the toolkit mm. that you can basically chuck at every client because everyone's different and it's that's pretty much how it works Wow. So you could basically, could you rewrite the narrative of what a tulip means to you? If we stick with that example, is that it, like if it's a traumatic thing? Yeah. I, the reason I ask is I'm thinking of, for me, music and a song. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain artist in particular that me and my family just cannot listen to because it reminds us of a traumatic time where that artist was played a lot and it just makes us cower. And anytime it comes on anywhere, we all kind of, and we, nobody can stay on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. So is that the sort of stuff that you could kind of help? 100%. Uh, In fact, know, sideline to this. Rewrite. Absolutely, mm -hmm. rewrite. Sideline to this. If that's really a thing that you would like to get rid of, I would happily do that with you. I could easily do that. It would oh, take me half an hour, half an hour of your time. <laughs> and I could remove it. You see, the thing is, it's about, see, the way that the brain works is a lot of this to do with the brain. Once the brain accepts something as silly and ridiculous, it can no longer be afraid of it. That's a fact. And that's a really important notion. Mm. Once the brain accepts something as silly and ridiculous, it is no longer afraid of it. So if I ran at you with a big Timmy Malik rubber hammer, you'd probably laugh, right? Because you, your brain's oh, no threat. And no anxiety there you know it's this is silly and ridiculous no longer afraid of it so you're not afraid of it mm. i run it with a real hammer you're gonna be a bit more concerned right the brain kicks <laughs> in and yes, thinks what's his motive there and everything starts kicking in so the aim here is to is to break as you said break that association and rechange that association and that's absolutely right and so there are a few techniques you can use for that uh the trauma timeline is a really good way of doing that so when you look at the trauma timeline using unconscious mind therapy, it's really about going back through visualization. See, a lot of it's about visualization. 
Now, you may have heard of, say, the law of attraction, for example, and I think it gets a lot of bad press. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't really understand it sounds a bit woo-woo and you know what you have, you put out to the universe and the universe suddenly goes yeah here you are have it and that's not mm -hmm. how it really works you know it's about you changing the filter within your brain which is the reticular activating system and so that is your filter we need it without it the brain pops is too you can't take everything in equal measure and so what you think about you become what you become you think about the most is so true so if you wake up in the morning saying i don't feel loved your brain's going to look for information all day that confirms you're not loved look the neighbor didn't mm. say hello to me my wife didn't say i love you on the way out my mom hasn't said you know all these things you're looking for pieces of evidence all day that confirms that belief and so that's about retraining those neural pathways retraining the brain to work on a different filter so by doing that with a timeline we use visualization going back to key moments that comes up you know think about feel how you feel see what you see you know um colors taste smells like really take mm -hmm. you there and you close your eyes for that process because when you close your eyes you literally turn off all of your senses it's powerful stuff it's amazing it, i mean i just absolutely love it when you get to that very moment you process those feelings and then you do some other work where you pull them out let's say when you i don't know that event you're talking about let's say you was eight years old when that when that occurred so i'd hear that would get you there and you as an adult would get you to talk to your eight-year-old self what would you like useful information would you like to say swap you over and get you to be the eight-year-old what's it like to receive that information and we keep going back and forth until we feel that that work is done and then we get you to step aside and reframe and reframe as if you know what it would be like if that hadn't happened to you because what happens mm -hmm. is it's limiting beliefs yeah limiting beliefs it's really easy if someone just said to you oh just let it go it doesn't land what you have to do is yeah, have to go through yeah. that process that the body can accept it to move forward and so it's stopping you from moving forward so when we look at visualization what would it be like when you are eight and you're creating this whole new timeline it's like well now i'm sitting at the front of the class and what are you doing well i'm engaging with my peers okay what's that going to do for you when you move forward well suddenly i'm now i'm now qualifying i'm going to university and now what and so you're working with the future and it shows you that you don't mm -hmm. have to be held back we can't change that past but you don't have to be held back by that and through this process we do some more little tools and techniques and it and it really helps shift the energy and helps you really accept it. It's got a lot of um, similarities to EMDR. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not an EMDR therapist. I'd love to be one, but um, that's next on the list. So I don't know if I've just fried your noodle with all that information, but I'm very passionate. About I'm letting it marinate and I'm kind of thinking <laughs> yeah. about, uh, well, a couple of things really. One is uh, through the lens of the theme of this episode, which is looking at addiction, not from the perspective of the addict, but from a loved one mm. that is watching this happen to somebody close to them and how their mental health is affected. So sometimes I think we can't rewrite something traumatic, can we? I'm thinking from their perspective and then maybe a song is a trigger. Mm -hmm. But then I also think, I know you work with a lot of addicts, but with the work that you've just described, that probably does have a place in terms of working with people that have gone through a traumatic time because of, you know, they've been caught in the crossfire of Absolutely. somebody they love having addiction issues. Absolutely. I work with both. Um, you know, mm. um, I never, I never thought I would actually, I always thought I was very much focused on the presenting client would happen to be someone who is addicted to a substance or no matter what the addiction was. 
Um, but then obviously, because yeah. that was my my core background at that time, obviously working within community drug and alcohol services and private services before I trained as a, as a psychotherapist. But I also realized that I liked other areas such as anxiety, you know, phobias, OCD, personality disorder, whatever it might be. Uh, but then I found mm. that there would be a lot of partners inquiring, you know, my husband, my wife, my girlfriend, mm. they're going through this. Mm you know, I'm not sure if they're ready for help, but I'm, I'm lost. And I always say in the end, it's really hard to, to determine who the addict actually is in a relationship, in the family unit, because both parties feel hopeless. Both parties feel mm. what's the point. There's mm. the boundaries are all gone. And that's why mm. you'll find there's a lot more family programs now, a lot of self-help groups for families, because they recognize that the addiction really is like paint stripper. It goes through families. You know, those days are long gone where people think it's just the person that's that's suffering. And actually, the more people talk about it, the more stories that there are that we realize that actually it affects everybody. It really does, you know, because mm. emotionally you feel it. You know, if you've got your loved one and you know something's wrong with them, how many times do we say to our partner, you know, like, well, friend, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. What's going on for you? No, nothing. But something's you've mm -hmm. picked up on the energy that something isn't right. And so imagine on top of that is because there is something darker, such as addiction mm -hmm. or, you know, the acting out, they're trying to hide it. They're in denial of it. All these kind of things. You just feel it. You know, we're receptive. We're sensitive people. We can feel the energy isn't right. That's why we check. Are you all right? You seem a bit quiet today. What's some, you know, those, these are the lighter end stuff. But there are much more, yeah. you know, much more prominent uh, signs and symptoms. And, and I think, you know, we just need to keep having the conversation. And that, and that's mm. really it. Just keep having the conversation because there are a lot of people that won't come forward and say, actually, I've got something going on because it's a shame based illness. You know, I do believe it's an illness and it's shame based. So no one's going to go, yes, actually, I'm an alcoholic. Been wanting to tell you that for years. Some people might, you know, get to that point. But the more support mm. there are for families and loved ones and friends and carers uh, out there, and, and that has increased, you know, lots of charities and lots of private there's lots mm -hmm. of different support systems out there now and i think that's really really great because we now know it's not just the individual it affects everybody around them and so many mm -hmm. times i have seen this especially working in private treatment is you might have a loved one that then gets sober and gets clean and then the partner almost feels like well i don't know what my role is anymore because i've spent most of my years picking up the pieces of x right and now x seems to like self-actualize and move forward in their life and I'm still outside looking in, where yeah. am I? And that's a really good point, especially if certain people go down a recovery program, you know, a particular self-help program of looking at self and, and they thrive. If they follow that program, they thrive, but they have to remember it's a bridge to normal living. And sometimes the, the loved one can still feel on the outside looking in. So that's why that repair work mm -hmm. is really important. And those boundaries are really important to establish it. And I've seen some real great work occur in that, in that regard. But there are also loved ones that don't understand what it's like and that's usually the first thing i don't understand and of course we don't know what we don't know you know and as i said to you when we first connected that sometimes it's like i've explained it it's not the same but it's like being in love have you been in love before yourself oh yes oh, oh yeah oh yeah oh yes okay so that's the session in itself we'll, we'll pick up all right um <laughs> that's a whole other, other oh, episode yes i have Tana. yes i have Tana. <laughs> yes i have all right note to yourself we'll come back to that um, <laughs> And, um, you yeah. know, and I say it's like being in love. So when you're in love, if then someone says to you, oh, no, you can't see that person, you can't be around that person, you'll do anything 
you can to get that love and to have that love. So all, you know, the unacceptable becomes acceptable. And though it's not the same, it gives you an inkling of those who do not understand addiction, what that might be like. And that gives them a little bit of an insight. But that's just an example. Well, I'm a bit reassured you saying there's more support out there for the the network because one when I sort of looked into it, then I didn't see when I was doing my research for this episode, I didn't find enough people coming forward sharing their stories. It seemed like it from the perspective of the loved one. So yeah, that is. I mean, that's what inspired me as well to do this episode because you know, just my own personal experience with addiction in the family, which still, and honestly, I just at this point, I think I, it's always going to be there. I don't know if that's the right thing to say or not, but that's, I think, how most of my my family feel. And we just don't know what to do. Ultimately, it does come down to the person, right, who has the addiction to decide. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of people don't want to give whatever it is up and don't ever get to that point. Please tell me if I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong. There will be people like that, but there'll also be people that don't know what it looks like. You know, we're, we're very, as human beings, we can adapt. And as strange as it sounds, people can become familiar with the pain. It doesn't have to be addiction. Mm. You know, people staying in relationships that they know are toxic and they shouldn't be in better the devil you know sometimes right what does it look like if i go right well i've never gone right i've always gone left and i know what waits for me left it's more pain but i got used to it and that's what i'm used to and it might be linked for what i've learned in previous behavior in my relationships in the past or you know i don't feel i'm good enough etc etc and therefore this is what i deserve but in terms of the change you know it's really hard and everyone's everyone's viewpoint is different right so it might be very painful to look at i mean to look at ourselves and to reflect isn't really in the public domain as a, as a regular thing. I mean, that's the stuff we should be teaching kids in school, not what the capital of France yeah. is. You can ask Google for them for that. You know, it's like teach them how to budget, teach them how to deal yeah. with rejection, teach them how to to deal with uh, overwhelming emotions and emotional regulation, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think people will experience so much pain for sure in any destructive system that, that changes the way you feel, no matter what it will be. But the unknown is frightening for some, terrifying. Uh, What does that look like? I don't know. So there is that reluctance to go into what does recovery really look like? A lot of people say, well, does that mean I'm going to be boring? Because all my life is centered Mm. around the pub or it's always centered around hosting or whatever it's going to be. And it's like already that association. And it's like, well, actually, if we're really honest, when were you the life and the soul of the party? You know, when did you really function perfectly fine? Actually, chaos erupted at some point for you to even question it. So it gets worse. But we we almost go back to the good times and the glamorizing of when it was all right. Um, and therefore, yeah. one end of the scale to the other must be completely boring. Well, you know, you've got alcohol-free markets out there. A bit controversial, I know. But, you know, the alcohol-free market is taken by storm. You know, I mean, it's incredible, really. Like, literally alcohol-free drinks are out there and things and there are people that have got taste for that it's not just people who are alcoholics there are people who have realized that actually i'm hitting a bit of the alcohol too much and i'd like a change so it is definitely becoming more popular i think as well the alcohol free drinks i know i've gone off topic slightly does that satisfy the craving though it's like you know your nicotine free vapes and stuff your alcohol free mm. 
whatever's, does that satisfy that overwhelming desire for whichever substance? Well, let's say alcohol, for example. What we're actually craving in the alcohol is the sugar. So in the early mm-hmm. days, what you tell people is pints of lemonade, you know, Coca-Cola, whatever you're going to drink, that takes the edge off. That's why so many former alcoholics have sugar addictions, isn't Absolutely it? I have right. read that. Absolutely. It's, mm. it's the sugar you're craving. But you see, where there are people in the field, will they'll all have an opinion. People in sort of self-help support groups, therapists within rehabilitation services and local services, they'll have an opinion on whether or not, if you are an alcoholic in recovery, should you or should you not be drinking alcohol free? I always say question the motive. Keep it really simple. There are same people that say that with medication. You know, there will be people around, oh, no, you need to come off your mental health medication and then you'll be really clean. You know, again, you know, everyone will have an opinion. I always say, what is the motive? If you are taking a a substance to change the way that you feel, question the motive. If that's what you're doing, then it's probably not a good thing. If you're having a alcohol beer because you want to be normal, then Mm. it's probably not the way for you. If you're doing it because you're missing the beer and all that, probably not a good idea. If you're doing it because you actually enjoy the taste and it's refreshing and you don't, you don't want to keep drinking lemonade or Coca-Cola, fine. That's up to you. So I think it's an individual journey. I don't think any professional can actually really say whether you should or you mm. shouldn't. I think that's an, that's, a, that's an experiential thing. And I think everyone is different, though there are some reports to say that it res- responds to certain receptors within the brain. I'm not completely okay with that uh, notion at this stage, but I have met a therapist mm. that said there's, there's something, it does something to the brain that almost replicates the same sort of feeling. So I'm not sure yet, but more more research, I guess, and, and more conversations, I guess. But I think it's an individual choice, but always question mm. the motive. There were so many things when I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole here when I was looking at types of addictions. Mm. I've got a big list here, alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs, nicotine, vaping, I think, is actually more addictive than cigarettes. I vaped previously and I still crave it now more than ever I did a cigarette. Was it you craving the vape more? Is yeah. it the flavouring? Is it the flavour you miss? The taste? Yeah, it could be a bit of the whole. I always went for the mint, the menthol one, because I used to smoke menthol cigarettes. Yes. Yeah. Um, harder to stop. So, yeah, that and also... It's that pausing time, isn't it, that cigarettes give you that sort of stop and, you know, do something with, something with your hands. I guess that was... Yep. But with a vape, you, I mean, I would do it more because you didn't need to go outside or whatever. It's you don't in smell. Hand, right? so, you can do it lying in bed. Yeah. You can do it any minute yeah. and no one will go, yeah. are you smoking? No. Um, yeah. Read of the taste. You used to get terrible headaches from it as well. Absolutely. It yeah. too much. I mean, it's got... Yeah propanol glycol or propellin glycol which is i can't say the name but that's the flavoring but that's mm. an irritate that's an irritant a lot of people don't realize so some people are allergic to that it's an irritant oh god yeah yeah yeah. but yeah so yeah. you're right so there is that but it's less addictive than cigarettes is it believe it or not i mean it's out on the news wow. at the moment there is, is there is some conversations because of all the chemicals that are in it in the cigarette so are more which makes it more what you crave for example um people that used to smoke cannabis right they'd say oh, the, the cravings the cravings it's not really actually the weed sometimes that they're craving it's the the nicotine the and all the other bits and pieces and the chemicals within the cigarette is what they were craving if they smoked it with, with a, a cigarette in it so you get them to change it into mm. tobacco or something like that but um mm. at the moment yeah they're saying that it is still a good stepping stone to stop 
But then there was someone I was speaking to who I think there are some reports that when you vape, it almost responds in the same way as smoking crack cocaine. And so it creates that Moorish kind of yeah. addictive way of, of puffing on it, um, which yeah. I thought was quite interesting. We're yeah. learning more all the time. We're learning more all the time. But yes, you're right. So prescription medication, alcohol, drugs, gambling. Ga- gambling, yeah. shopping. What else you got? Shopping, yeah. Uh, sex, porn, yep. Yep. love, food, yep. um, sugar, of course, exercise. Yeah. Work. How many mm-hmm. workaholics do you know? Caffeine, mm-hmm. tattoos, mm-hmm. social media, tanning. <laughs> I don't have that problem. Yes. That. <laughs> uh, compulsive hair pulling, skin picking, plastic surgery and gaming. Mm-hmm. So those are, there's a very broad kind of mix, isn't there? Is there like a common thing in the brain, though, I, I wonder? Is there like... You know, you get some people that will say things like, oh, I've got, and I'm going to wear, quote, an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Is there such a thing? I think so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anything, when you determine what that is, anything to change the way that you feel. You know, as human beings, we want to feel good all the time, do we not? It's just not reality, but we do. We want to feel good all the time. You know, we want mm-hmm. to connect. We want to do all these things. All we ever really want is love and to be loved. And if we go down to the old primitive instincts, you know, biologically, we're meant to connect. We are meant to, you know, have those healthy attachment styles because it meant survival, meant we weren't going to be food. So, you know, that's from a biological level, right, right down into that survival. And so we need each other. We need people. But actually to self-soothe and to really be successful, if every child on the planet was told that they are enough and that they are loved, every single one of us, without fail, and we believed it because we were shown it, we'll be thriving. But it's when there is a distortion in that, when, you know, um, environmental, social, all these other things kick in that sort of create limiting beliefs and, and get in the way of that. They mm. can play a part. I don't think, you know, because there are people who would have experienced a, either a single trauma or continual trauma and addiction seems to be the pathway. And, you know, a lot of people will relate to that but there are people that haven't experienced that that grew up in a really great loving household and whatnot so then then the question comes well then how how does that materialize and i think Mm. there are always those conversations my belief is that the external isn't the factor it's a contributing factor you know I, i think they won't help but actually, when you look at what's going on within the brain, and we don't talk about it enough around the brain, we always talk about the illness and kind of uh, the trauma base and whatnot, but there are more people coming forward and saying that's not what's happened. But actually, it's to do with our, I'm going to sound a bit sciencey for a moment, it's all to do with the frontal cortex speaks to the midbrain, right? So imagine you, your frontal cortex is really like your um, your guide, you know, your sense of reason. It's like, well... Oh, don't jump off that cliff because I think you might fall and hurt yourself. And the midbrain goes, oh, okay, yeah, um, but but what if we put a parachute on maybe? Frontal cortex says, well, maybe that might be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, all right, let's do that. So it's the guide and we talk and they keep communicating. And what happens with addiction at some point, the frontal cortex is muted. It's speaking to the midbrain, but midbrain can't hear it. It's like it's just on mute. And so what happens is it needs to survive. The brain's job is to survive. That's all its job is to do is keep you alive. And so it then starts to communicate with the pleasure sensor. 
And eventually, you know, I'm feeling discontented. I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Pleasure, oh, I feel better. Oh, it's coming again. Pleasure, feel better. Pleasure, feel better. So pleasure in the end becomes survival. So survival and pleasure equal the same thing. And that's really interesting. That that's how the brain interprets. And they did this test with mice. And the mice would touch the electrodes and get electric shock for the pleasure, for the drugs, until they died. So what was going on in the brain is it was pleasure, I'll be all right, survival, 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 until they eventually died. And so actually, this is where the solution here is time. So time is what the healer is. You know, they say it, the cliche time is a healer, but actually time really is the only way. And at some point when you're not activating the pleasure sensor, when you're not acting out all of the time and you take that abstinence approach and you identify your triggers, get instilled hope, see other people go through it and, and living in the solution that gives you that hope. The more you then change those neural pathways in your brain, doing other activities and coping mechanisms and learning new coping mechanisms, you eventually start to heal in that time. And then the midbrain can hear the frontal cortex again. And then they mm. can communicate. And so that's really what's happening on a on the brain level as well. Mm. But it doesn't help when, remember, the brain is looking for survival. So if there's been a sexual trauma, there's been abandonment, someone that's been moved from house to house or any other kind of thing, that's going to be painful. Uh, the interpretation of that's going to be painful and therefore they want to survive. So, of course, the pleasure sensor is going to change the way that we feel and that's going to be the cut. So it can obviously not help in those situations. Yeah. And that's a really good conversation to have because some people say, am I born with it? Did I catch it? Did I inherit it? Did mm -hmm. I learn it? You know, mm -hmm. and I think that really kind of answers it all, really. I think all of it plays a contributing factor. I don't think there's a definitive answer. Maybe I'm wrong, but look, I'm not a doctor, you mm -hmm. know, and I know you said I'm an, an expert, but I'm a specialist and I appreciate the big up as an expert, but <laughs> I class myself as a specialist because I don't know absolutely everything and I'm still open to learn. I love learning yeah. it, you know, and I'm learning more all the time. So I think... I never dismiss anything, and I, and I think it's still an open conversation. But a lot of people have have had experiential, existential stuff happen to them and interpret, and it creates the coping mechanism. But there are others that haven't had that trauma and have still gone down that route. When you're in it, do you even realise how much destruction you are causing and pain to the people around you? Only the individual can tell you that because everyone's experience is different but what i can right. tell you is yes to a degree of course some people can be in denial yeah you know looking in the mirror no i'm okay i'm all right no one knows it's all right it's okay justification denial or what can also continue the behavior is the fact that there is that shame that they are fully aware how much pain it's causing and that guilt and that shame it's so damaging it's just like this is awful so i don't know how to change that so i'm going to keep using anyway because it's survival right, right? the brain mm. is in survival constant pleasure sense and this is what's happening and that and that would make sense wouldn't it because most people will say well if you love me you'd stop and it's like, well of course i love you so no love could even stop uh, that for someone so that tells you there's something more going on and that the overriding obsessive thought to change the way that we feel. Mm. So, yes, there will be people in denial. There will be people fully aware, but that can continue the shame and continue that. But it can also be the catalyst that creates a solution and says, actually, do you know what? This is madness. The whole family are in it. Everyone's feeling it. I've I got to change because this is not who I am. Mm. My experience has been a bit of sheepishness for a day or two, and then it's like it never happened 
Hmm. I did, as you know, put the word out there on social media asking people to share any stories that they had in terms of their mental health when it comes to watching a loved one go through some kind of addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me see. Here we go. I'm going to just read out a few. My boyfriend has struggled with porn addiction in the past, and it was something hard not to take personally and get down on myself for not being good enough, hot enough, Mm. sexual enough. Mm. Powerful. Yeah. And really common. Really common. Yeah. What what her, her the person's response to what they're writing there is quite a common statement. Please continue. Mm. Uh, deny, deny, deny. I found empty wine bottles in the car behind the bath. There's always an explanation or hard deflection. If we didn't have kids, I'd have left the marriage by now. But I'm too scared for their welfare if I walk. My mm. wife won't admit she has a problem. I feel stuck, helpless, and incredibly frustrated. Mm. Uh, I'm now single, no kids, and just spent over two years trying to help my older boyfriend. Drugs leave the person ungrateful, selfish, without empathy. You get no thanks trying to help an addict. You just waste your life and lose your sanity and happiness. The partners are always left feeling second best to a drug. Um, Yeah. Wow. That's really hard hitting, isn't it? Yeah. And then um, this one is, being in love with an addict is time-consuming. Mentally draining and physically exhausting. I used Mm. to think that I could handle anything, but it was dating an addict, which really pushed me to the brink. Mm. My advice for someone who loves an addict is that you have to do your best to support them, but that support can't be unconditional. At some point, you do have to think of your own needs, feelings and goals. Absolutely. Bang on. That's correct. And it's easier said than done, but it's true. It's like the boundary because big part of addiction is manipulation so if we're enabling the behavior mm, yeah and we're gonna you know every time i cry i get the bottle of milk well, i'm gonna keep crying because i'm gonna get the bottle of milk so cry 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 milk 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 cry cry more, more crying more milk so you know the manipulation the enabling can i have this money i need this can i borrow yep 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 well because if i don't do that they're gonna go out there and i don't know what else to do uh, tough love you would have heard that talked about but boundaries i just mm. say boundaries and, and what those boundaries look like is what are the boundaries in the relationship, but what is also your self-boundary? So next time this happens, I'm off. How many people might be listening have ever said that and given them the ultimatum, but stuck with it, you know, sometimes. Mm. And then, you know, the person that's really in addiction might say, well, they're never going to leave. They're not going to go until they actually go. And then, then sometimes they might you know, go forward and think, I need to get the help. So it's about the boundary. It's about looking at where is your line? Because it's like, it's what it's one thing to watch somebody go down and that pain and you're powerless to do anything about it, to change it for them with all the will in the world. Mm. But then it's another thing if you go down to, and so there mm. has to come that line. And sometimes we have to detach with love. It's a hard choice to make and it's an individual choice to make. When you talked about the porn addiction there and my heart goes out straight away, that person interprets as I mustn't be enough. Maybe I'm not sexy enough. Maybe I, I, you know, it's like number one, because I'm also a sex addiction therapist and porn addiction therapist and compulsive behavior. It's nothing to do with you. So whoever wrote that in, it is absolutely nothing to do with you. It is not your fault that he has or she has that addiction. 
it has no bearing on whether you're sexy enough. And when you look at what, you know, porn and sex addiction is, most people, in fact, most regular people I'd have around like a dinner table might say, oh, that'd be a good addiction to have. And I think, no, actually, it's one of the most loneliest and shame, shameful addictions to have, actually, because it's not about the amount of sex that you have. It's not about the amount of porn. Some people use sex to avoid intimacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some people, why are we using porn in the first place? Is it because we're feeling less than and we've got some anxiety around sex itself? Is it because we have been shamed in some way and therefore porn will never let me down? Is it that we're curious and, and inquisitive? Is it changing and give us that temporary fix and changing the way that we feel because we can't communicate how we're really feeling? Are we feeling lonely? Loads of different things. And when we're looking at the dopamine release with porn, it's very instant. Instant mm-hmm. release of dopamine, which is not how sex works. You know, some people find an increase in porn because they find that sex is leaving them flat. Well, that's because you're releasing dopamine in such an instant way, like white pasta is quick releasing in, in energy. And actually sex is like your brown pasta, slower releasing in energy, slower releasing in dopamine. It builds over time. Mm. You know, I did a post not long ago called porn and pasta, just to give that exact analogy, right? And I find people can take that a bit more. I mean, you smiled there because you knew exactly where I was going with that and made sense yeah. to you. And that's how my brain works. But with porn, you know, again, it's attack. With a sex and porn addiction, it's attachment, trauma, or opportunity. You know, it's really digging deep around that. Hiding the alcohol, the second person you talked about, hiding the alcohol and hiding the bottles. Well, again, we're exposing what they already know. They know. They know. Of course, they'll know that they've got the issue, but you're exposing it, and that makes me feel even worse. And now it means I've got to face it, and I don't know if I can face it. Leave me alone. And maybe if I don't acknowledge it, it's not really happening because I can't believe it. I've gone from that to this suddenly. You know, it's very exposing. None of us yeah. like our flaws to be exposed, right? If I found out your flaws, you wouldn't like me to expose those flaws to to the world or anyone else or to yourself sometimes if you're not in fully acceptance of those flaws, right? But surely you can't turn a blind eye. No, but for some it's not that easy, right? For some it's just not that easy. Um, and again, it's it depends on the situation. And I say that a lot. I've said this a lot in this interview because I've met so many people from all different walks of life, all different careers. Addiction doesn't care what color you are, what weight you are, what class you're in, what job you have. It will get you. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, It really doesn't. And so therefore, the more diverse cultures, backgrounds, classes, there's going to be more stories and more avenues. You know, there are people who would use because they weren't loved enough. There were people who were loved more than enough, but interpreted they're not enough. And they're even more shame shaming. So it will get you in other angles. So everyone's story is different. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? If somebody's using because they think they're not enough, but then the byproduct of that is that's probably how their partner's going to feel, like we heard in one of the examples. Absolutely. But I'm conscious of your time and I just want to make sure we get in some sort of takeaways for people that are listening to this that do have somebody they care about that's struggling with addiction. And Mm. I wanted to go back to talking about enabling. This is from 12keysrehab.com. The blog post was getting inside the mind of an addict and I thought this was an interesting paragraph. Enabling is one of the most common mistakes people living with addicts make. Most loved ones of addicts don't even realize they're doing it. Enabling an addict means you're keeping your loved one in the cycle of addiction by not letting them suffer the consequences of their behaviors. 
It's easy to confuse enabling with caring. Enabling may come in the form of caretaker, excuse maker and fixer. It can feel like you're helping your loved one, but if they never experience the consequence of their actions, what motivation do they have to get better? I think if it's a parent and it's their kid that's got the addiction, saying no, I think could be extremely hard if I don't let them crash here, are they going to go on the streets? You know, if I don't give them this money, are they going going to steal it instead? So hard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's so hard. There's no quick answer. There is no Mm. quick answer. Um, It's easy for for all of us to have an opinion and say, until we're faced with that situation, until Mm. we're really in that position, you won't really know. As I said, detaching with love is a statement that needs consideration. It's a real painful place to be. But yes, you know, we are not contributing to that person's behavior. They are doing what they're doing because of how they're interpreting the world and themselves in that world. And all we're doing is, in that example, is we are continuing the permission for that behavior to continue. Because I forget when it's mm-hmm. looking at addiction, they're not bad people. It's I'm, where I'm, I'm well people at that time and so mm. what that means is judgment is clouded it's it's hard to see if you if you're a loved one and uh, and there's not been a success there to get that compassion in but actually with someone that's in the depths of addiction all that matters is the finding and getting more to change the way that we feel so all that unacceptable becomes acceptable because mm. the getting and using getting and using getting and drinking acting out, acting out acting out that's the overriding obsessive thought to change the way that we feel because there's that inability to regulate emotion in the right way and communicate how we're feeling or really move forward in their life without this because this is the coping mechanism that's now destructive so now the coping mechanism has become a destructive mechanism and i don't know what else to do so the cycle keeps continuing because now there's the shame there's the guilt there's the remorse and so what we do we don't want to feel that we keep pushing that down and we don't know Mm. how we feel until we're numb so it's Mm. it's very complicated and sometimes it can be very easy to judge that but that can be motivated by the pain that one is feeling that they've, that they've experienced, you know, and that mm-hmm. intolerance that they've, they've that they've felt, the amount that they've taken. And for a lot of people within addiction, there is a lot of manipulation involved in that. And so a loved one, if they feel that, it's going to be very hard for them to get the compassion and if they go to a different relationship and see the signs again in someone else. Sometimes it's like, no, been here before, not having that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really hard. Mm, absolutely. What you were saying as well about the, the boundaries, and this is taken from the, the same article, boundaries say I love you, but I won't aid in your addiction. Healthy boundaries often include not making excuses for your addicted loved one to friends and family when they mess up, not letting your loved one to be in the house or attend family gatherings if they're drunk or high, stop bailing them out if they get into legal or financial trouble, not letting addict behavior interfere with your self-care social activities job and other responsibilities and then they go on to talk about remembering the needs of the rest of your family Mm. because i do think as well the focus can all go towards the person that is granted you know tormented with this addiction but then that suddenly becomes the the family isn't it it's all everybody is connected to this situation absolutely as i said in the beginning it's like paint stripper it rips through families it's never just that individual and obviously that person that's given some 
some really good useful tips you know not every all of those i might necessarily agree mm. with but that's okay that's mm. the person that's their experience that's clearly mm. come from an experiential place that they found for them for their own sanity that was what they had to adopt and i think there'll be many people listening thinking that's a really good idea but how do you do that and it's like well mm. it's that leap of faith it's really that leap of faith and it's the same way of someone getting clean it's like well how do you do that it's that leap of faith yeah. trust the process we've all got to go through that new stage at some point yeah. um but when you've had enough enough's enough so that person yeah. that's given those tips clearly had enough couldn't yeah. couldn't go down and felt like well hold on this needs to change i need to change and you know quite often in uh, with recovering addicts they do this because it's a program of looking at themselves if they go down a particular route uh, a program to look at themselves and then quite often the families have been feeling that we'll keep pointing the finger at them but actually we need to point back at ourselves too and think right i need to look after myself and what about my self-care what about mm. my behavior because i've got mm. enmeshed in that behavior and it's bringing out a side of me that i don't like and so mm. i need to find out mm. who i am again and i need to reestablish because i'm a human being you know mm. so it is a journey yeah, and it's the hardest thing, isn't it? Because like you said, there's no right or wrong answer, I suppose. But I think about like Christmas Day and imagine you've got to make that decision whether you, you invite somebody for like the Christmas dinner. It's like, does everybody else have to be on tender hooks because they're not sure in terms of the person's behavior, if they've got some, you know, addiction or just feeling like crap knowing that, that loved one isn't round the table with everybody else. Nobody wins, do they? Nobody wins, and that's exactly right. You've seen that, and and all of those are very real examples, aren't they? That's exactly what mm. happens. There are people that just watch it unfold and the mess and the chaos and the carnage, uh, and then remember that forever, um, or, or or they exclude them from that. And say, actually, no, you know, I'm not having that. You can't, you can't mm. be around that. And then it's that that sadness. Um, it's all down to the family. It's all down to the individual. Um, of course, in an ideal world, those boundaries are really important. What we'd love to say is, excuse me, that behavior is not acceptable. I'd rather you didn't do that. Okay, I'll go and get some help. It's just not reality. It is for some people. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. I need to get on this. And that's fine too. So that's why I'm very careful that I never give the top tips, if you like, and tell you how yeah. it should be because everyone is different. Every family unit is different. There are people who... As you say, um, I can't kick them out on the street because I know who they're friends with and I know they'll be in a crack den before 11 p.m. and I'll never see them again. For others, it, they might not be in that particular sort of circle and they'll say, well, that's okay. I'll pay for them to be in a flat so I've got to see it. Um, and they'll be somewhere else. So someone might have a bit more of financial freedom. It's all very, very different. But ultimately, it's those boundaries. If they're crossing those boundaries, making your life hell at home and for others, we need to ha hold a hand and say, actually, this this is not acceptable behavior. And we need to look at what detaching of love looks like. And I promise mm -hmm. you, there is lots of uh, self-help groups for for loved ones and families. Most rehabs promote them anyway. But, you know, like Families Anonymous, NACOA, which is, you know, uh, adult child of alcoholics, um, Al-Anon, Al-Ateen, uh, impact programs for families and carers. There's mm -hmm. so many different things out there. You know, Alcohol Change UK, all these kind of things. And things such as the Priory and, and other private treatment centres, they 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 have them at that disposal. You can get information. You can look online, addiction treatment online on Google, and you, you can speak to these lines and they'll be able to give you some information for families. But ultimately, I've seen the best freedom when the families, individuals work a programme 
of sorts themselves look at themselves and get a program for living in their own mind you know i know i said program a lot but the 12-step program not really talked about it but the 12-step program i i'm a big big fan of you know linda mccartney was not an alcoholic or an addict she said if regular folk followed the 12-step program we'd all be better people because it's a program looking at ourselves and i thought that made so much sense you know it's really looking at your own behavior because we we're powerless over people places and things we can't i can't change you whatever viewpoint you've got today i can't change that powerless over that but i can make my life unmanageable if i keep trying to change your mind i got to accept you you're entitled mm. to your viewpoint mm. and so we have to look at trusting the process ask for help really look at our own behavior um, and that's really really important so there is plenty of support uh, mm. out there really Mm, okay and i'm gonna um take this moment now tana to ask you why have you devoted so much of your life's work mm. helping those who suffer addiction or those who are have a loved one suffering addiction well i never really thought this would be my line of work if i'm honest okay i was always performing on stage and uh, music and drama and i've worked every job you can possibly imagine in the nightclub industry sales environments but unfortunately, I have my own journey of mental health and addiction. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted to sit here and tell you I'm nearly 17 years clean. Um, and it's the uh, best I've ever felt in my entire life. And I had no idea when I got clean what I'd be doing. But I just fell into it. I fell into giving out leaflets for school kids on the Talk to Frank bus um, for the drug mm -hmm. awareness program. And, and I met youth workers and I wanted to know more. And and then I went and volunteered and then I worked in the drug service and they took a chance on someone who had no qualifications in his field, but was a bit off the wall and had his own personal experience. I had no boundaries and, uh, you know, self-disclosing all the time. And I had to learn and people gave me their time. They could see I had something, which was great. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I sort of become teachable and, uh, and, I, and I absolutely love it. And I'm not saying you have to be in the same position because no one knows what it's like to be you, but you. And this is just for me and everyone's preference is different. If I am going to go and see a lost counsellor because I've lost a dog or a loved one or loss of a job, I kind of want to know, for me, that that therapist knows what the feeling of loss feels like. And not everyone needs to feel that way, but I find that me, my own experience, I don't make it about me at all, but I find mm -hmm. that it's such a, a heavy, toxic, uh, draining field of addiction not it's not for everyone i get that but usually people work in it because they're affected by it directly or indirectly uh that's mm. been my experience and mm. and i know what being in that hell is like and wanting to die and not wanting to live anymore and contemplating it and shaming the family and all of this stuff and so but i also know what it looks like on the other side so i have that belief that it can get better no matter what whether it's addiction or anything, we, as human beings, we can improve and better the quality of our life and reach our fullest potential. And I want to be a part of that, that journey. And and I love it. What was the catalyst for you to get help? Um, when did you decide enough is enough? Yeah, I didn't. That's the point. You know, when you mentioned earlier on, when they're ready, I weren't ready. I was forced to. I was 24 years old. Um, my parents mm -hmm. had went and seen someone uh, professionally and I ticked all the boxes and they gave me a mini intervention and challenged me in the kitchen. And uh, it was basically shape up or ship out because we can't go down with you. You know, all the lying, mm. all the deceit, this anger, this resentment you've got. It's just, it's intolerable. So shape up or ship out. My dad wanted to lash out. He was, he didn't know what to do. He got, you know, very upset. My mum's like, we need to play this right because otherwise he'll use this as an excuse to go off and do even worse things. 
So we need to tackle this in the right way with love, but let him know that his behavior is unacceptable. Uh, and so uh, I went and got the help and I didn't really, I wanted the consequences to stop. I didn't really want to stop using and drinking, mm -hmm. but I wanted the consequences to stop. And of course, the, the more I went and engaged in, in the helping programs that I went to, the more I started to hear stories, the more hope I got and the more belief I thought, well, maybe it can get better. And as a, and a day become a day. And that was the catalyst really. And uh, I messed about for about six months and I've continued on that journey ever since. And as a result, I've become a productive member mm -hmm. of society, Gabby. <laughs> you know, it's mental. Wow. Really. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad. I've got an eight-year-old daughter, never seen me drink. I've got a wife, married nearly 11 years, never seen me drink. You know, mm -hmm. I'm... I, Congratulations. I, thank you. Yeah, thank you. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a real pleasure to to live. You know, I get to live and learn how to live and that destructive mechanisms um, aren't the way forward. And, uh, you know, I just love facilitating possibility change for anybody whether it be a partner, mm. addiction, anxiety, anything. We all need each other. Mm. We all need to connect. And we all fall off that way sometimes. We're human beings, man. Like mm. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to feel it's hopeless at one point. And it's just that human helping another human. And that sounds so cliche and cheesy when I say it. But that's my belief, you know, because otherwise I'll get into the politics and this one, what's going on in that world and that country. Forget that. Just this right now, what we're doing, the connecting, the connection. That's really mm. key. And giving that person that space to be non-judged and be able to go, here, blur, this is what's going on for me. I'm not there to fix mm. it. I'm there to listen and help you be your own scientist. That's my job. And I love being a part of that. Amazing. Wow. Final question. I ask every guest to set the listeners some homework based on the theme of the episode. Okay. So in this case, what is a simple, actionable first step that we can take when it comes to loving an addict whilst looking after ourselves that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? I think outing the behavior, outing the behavior. Mm. I think it's hundred percent. If that's your loved one, call it out, you know, but not in a shameful way, because sometimes some people might think I'm going mad. I'm going crazy. I'm sure there's something going on there. And then they, no, 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 no. You know, we, we do it all the time, especially love. Love is blind. So we ignore the red flags because we, we want that love, right? So the red flags go. And it's not until afterwards you think, oh, do you know, those flags were there, but because of the love. So I think really, if you think there's something wrong, there probably is. So name it, mm. but do it with love and compassion. Love and compassion, love and compassion. Have that conversation. What's going on for you? I'm here. You know, share how you're feeling. Well, when you do this, I feel this way. And give them that opportunity so you know you're doing everything you can. And so even if all that you do and it doesn't work, you know that if you do decide to leave that relationship or you go another way, you know you've done everything you can. But I think having that conversation, because there will be people listening that are in like that intervention I had with my parents. I knew deep down I needed to be found out. I didn't have the courage. I was too shameful to go, Dad, Mum, I'm in it. But they, they knew, I knew, but no one said anything until they said something. And do you know what? I was so relieved I didn't have to live a double life anymore. Thank you for outing mm -hmm. it. I needed that extra nudge. And there they were never to disappoint. And so that might also be another thing. So bring it to the forefront. Bring it to the attention. See what happens. You might get, you're right, love. This is what's happening. But at least start that conversation and share how you feel. Even if you don't feel you're able to tell me, loved one, this is how I'm feeling at your behavior. This is what it's like to live with you. This is what it's like to receive you. We often ask uh, clients that when I work with clients, what's it like for your family to receive you? Ooh, powerful question. 
ask a client that what's it like for your family to receive you in your behavior you know get some really mm. thinking so share how you're feeling how you feel their behavior impacts you but speak from the eye that's what i would always suggest name it we can't be classically british and hold it in the head and say nothing you know that person mm. pushed in the queue we'll say nothing right we've got to own it if they're your loved one why wouldn't you own it absolutely you'd share it mm. you'd say what's on their mind share what's on your mind that's what i would say it's hard i know but that's one of the bravest steps you can make because you never know oh tanner thank you so much so for more on you people can head to your website which is tanner is it what's it a minus sign hyphen, hyphen yeah. thank you hassan h-a-s-s-a-n.com and you're on the gram under tanner therapy i and we'll am put that in the show notes as well thank you very much really lovely to talk to you Thank you again to the wonderful Tana Hassan and thank you to you for listening to this episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. Now for the important housekeeping, if you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download. You can access all of its content so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, which is me, and the interviewees. The content of this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The Priory Healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the recent reviews. We really, really appreciate it. If you haven't already subscribed, please do. And if you do get a chance to give us some feedback, it always goes very much appreciated. And to find and follow us on social media, if you're not already there, we are at My Possible Self. And I've been at Radio Gabby. Please do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.